you know, after we've been in the space so long, we're crystal clear on the fact is that almost always we can find some kind of solution and we don't have to own the problem. And we really recognize that if there wasn't problems, there wouldn't be property management. Right. I mean, if the tenants were amazing all the time and could repair everything, the owner wouldn't hire us. So in a way, the more problems, you know, for some people that creates more stress. For us, it just really solidifies more of what we do and our value. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have Aaron Robertson on the show. Aaron, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Aaron, let's give some background for our viewers. What market, unit, asset class? Can you just kind of contextualize what you do? Absolutely. So we run a full-time property management company out of Redding, California. Redding's an interesting place, about 110 miles from the Oregon border. Uh, We have about 110,000 people in our space. And then uh, we manage 750 properties daily. Roughly about 50 of those are commercial, 50 multifamily, and the balance are all single-family homes. And how did you get into property management? That's actually a crazy story. I was in the restaurant business for almost 15 years uh, in management, and I really got tired of working weekends. Mm. And property management really gives you the opportunity to get out of working a lot of weekends. Mm-hmm. So having small kids in the restaurant space, most days I would go to uh, work and they'd be asleep, and I'd get home and they'd be asleep. Really just couldn't have that anymore. So I actually jumped off to get an opportunity to become an appraiser, and uh, that didn't work out so well. So I jumped in and got my real estate license and then ended up in property management. What was the genre of restaurant? What kind of, was it fast, casual? What, what kind of? Well, I ran multiple KFC units for some time, and then I moved into uh, working with Darden restaurants and ran an Olive Garden for about seven years. Now, what were the skill sets that you acquired at that time? When you think about running a restaurant relative to running a property management business, what's, what's the intersection in the Venn diagram there? I think two things, really people skills and customer service are probably the two largest that I learned working for a fine dining restaurant. Most people probably don't realize how intense the Olive Garden is as far as following their roots from Italy. It's pretty crazy, actually. Tell me, Um, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, to give you an idea, you know, a lot of restaurants bring in a lot of items that they don't make daily. And at the Olive Garden, when I ran it, this was 18 years ago, but when I ran it, we only had two items that were really shipped in. Otherwise, we made everything in-house. I mean, absolutely everything. The only things that weren't uh, made in-house were the desserts uh, because they were hyper-complicated. But otherwise, we made all of the sauces. I think it was probably 31 sauces every morning, six soups. I mean, so it was, it was pretty crazy. How was a pasta made on site? Uh, no, actually, that was trucked in. Dried pasta was trucked in, but uh, all cooked on site, obviously. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I think that's probably one of the things that really brought us into customer service was their passion as far as, uh, you know, running that straight through to the customer. What about the logistical complexity? One of the things that I think is interesting about the hospitality environment is that there's such a high cadence of movement that it obviously requires forethought, moving parts property management, by contrast, it's high cadence. There's a lot of logistical challenges, but it's not about physical proximity as much. What were your kind of takeaways on the systems and the structures required in that environment to make it work well? 
Sure. I mean, running a, a restaurant really brings that into the fold, you know, because you have to have a system all the way from the back door to the table onto the guests leaving out the front door. I mean, all the way from uh, inventory to ordering stuff and getting it all put away and then cooked and brought to plate. And then, as I mentioned, to the table. So, I mean, system, systems and more systems. I mean, we had a system for everything in that environment. What do people not know about what it takes to run a restaurant? Like what's one thing that's maybe unexpected people wouldn't know? I think a lot of folks getting into that space maybe don't understand the amount of hours that are required to run a restaurant and run it well. I mean, you really have to be in the shop a lot of time. I mean, it's a lot of things are very tough to delegate out. So the dream of, you know, getting to a passively run business is kind of a pipe dream running a restaurant? Um, unless you have a, a, a large one, I would say, you know, I think if you have under, say, 100 tables, I think that would probably be pretty tough. Uh, to not be involved in it day to day. It may be possible to hire a general manager, but typically the profit margins in a restaurant are not as nice as other businesses due to product cost and labor cost. Uh, so it becomes a little harder to get in key players at the top due to expense. So you move from hospitality, do the appraiser thing for a minute, and then you jump from there into property management. Did you under What did you think you were getting into with property management? It sounded like a lot of fun, honestly, in the beginning. Didn't sound nearly as complicated. I think I wasn't aware of all of the laws. The education and training that you get to get a real estate license uh, doesn't really encompass all of the laws and parameters and things that you have to follow. So I got a good lesson in that right after we got started. So it was pretty interesting. Did you get an audit or what, did, what, was, the, what was the lesson? Oh, just the amount of times that you have to interact with your attorney on different situations and questions you might not know. And, and it's kind of interesting sometimes. I have a fantastic attorney that we've been working with for 17 years. And uh, he's kind enough to send me all the civil codes that encompass something when he tells me something, which I really like, because then I can understand it. I, I, I do just democratizes it. Mm -hmm. I do just trust him, but I don't have to. I can also read back so that I understand it. Uh, but sometimes we'll be discussing one issue and there'll be seven civil codes to cover in that, uh, which then at that point kind of builds a flow chart of whether or not you're following along with this civil code and then next this one and so forth and so on. So it can get quite complicated. What is your staff size right now? Uh, 10 team members, two owners. Are you portfolio or departmental? Departmental. How many of those team members are stateside versus remote? Um, all of them but one. Are All of them but one mm -hmm. are, are stateside? Correct. Got it. Okay. What are your thoughts on some of the shifts that we've seen in the industry over the last three or four years? The industry has changed, accelerated. There's a lot of good things happening. Sure. What sticks out to you and what shifts have been most relevant for your business? I think probably people coming into the software space and really wanting to provide tools and, and things that we can use. You know, when I entered 18 years ago, we had basically Yardy. Otherwise, you had to, you know, format QuickBooks to help you in some sort of fashion, which it's not designed for that at all. Uh, so it's awesome to see so many software makers coming into the space and providing software. It's interesting. I helped a friend of mine launch a real estate company and uh, build out some of his systems. And the amount of software available to a real estate agent handling sales is, is almost infinite. You could spend all day shopping for it. But in our space, you could spend a stiff weekend trying to decide what property management software you want and have demoed most of the, the best of the best of them. So, you know, glad to definitely see that coming into our space. And what are some specific use cases that you feel like were most pressing? There's point solutions for, for maintenance, for <clears throat> self-showings. Where have you gotten the most bang for your buck on that, that front of the emerging tech? I think one of the most labor-saving ones that we've been involved in is self-showings, I think really changed our industry. You know, previously, before we had, say, Tenant Turner or Show Mojo, you know, the schedule, you had to almost have a full-time person if you were managing many vacant units. Um, 
which say 15 years ago due to different marketing conditions, sometimes we'd be running 30 or 40 empty at a time. So full-time person to show them, full-time person to handle scheduling and moving those folks around. And when the inventory is high, sometimes you're in a situation where you might show someone eight houses, nine houses before they ultimately decide on one to apply for. So a lot of labor intensive uh, of processes there, which we're glad to move away from through technology. Mm -hmm. So I know one of the things that I know about you from our offline relationship is that you are a systems and a process guy, that you enjoy that. When you think about the contribution that you make to the organization, there's all sorts of things that you could be working on. You could be talking, starting new business units. You could be doing one-on-ones with the staff, working on culture, systems and processes. Where does that systems process piece sit in terms of how you think about the priorities for the business and your specific contribution as the owner? Two parts that I would say, I mean, that's as we were talking before we started about Jolene handling a lot of the operation side of the business that gives me the opportunity to work on what I feel is most valuable, which is the processes. You know, we spend a lot of time with team members looking for direction in our organization on either how to handle a situation or how to move something around the board as far as a piece of the puzzle. And uh, the systems oftentimes can get them into those habits very quickly, utilizing the same information that we would use out of our mind or our head. Um, so I think that's super valuable. And I spend a lot of time on building the processes and then reevaluating uh, the processes that we have in place for efficiency now. And so what's what kind of leverage have you gotten? I know that you adopted Lead Simple not that long ago. When you go down this path of making the investments and tech and workflow, it can be a pretty loose idea. Apply some tech, make things better, get more efficient. Did you have any specific um, things that you were trying to influence? Did you have any heuristics to think about how you would know that this was a good idea after the fact? Like, how do you QA if all this hassle is actually working or producing yield? Do you, do you feel it out? Are there any metrics? How do you back into that? Um, a few things. One, we do have metrics at our business that we track for that, labor efficiency rates and things. Coming from the restaurant industry, I'm really used to doing those sort of things. Love it. Almost daily, right? Uh, but really, team stress is one where you can see them. You know, it's, it's really been my opinion ever since I've been in the management world, uh, property management and restaurant management, that, you know, your team shows the most stress when they don't know what to do. Mm. And I think the processing systems that we use, you know, we used uh, Process Street prior, moved to Lead Simple. I think those really help get people the education they need for some of the smallest nuts and bolts of things they can become responsible for. Um, say, for instance, you ask someone to take care of a task and they're not 100% on it, but all of the directions are right there for you. Similar to the way it was in the restaurant world where, you know, if you needed a recipe for a dish, you just go get the recipe card. You didn't have to know how to make it. You had to know how to find the ingredients and read and follow directions. Um, and I think the processing softwares really help with that, in my opinion. Um, it's part of why I'm so passionate about having those is because really my goal was to get the training baked into it. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, when someone starts with us, their first day, they spend an entire day after their tour of the facility in a processing software going through doing some fun things and, and some workload items to get them around the office, talking to the team, scheduling appointments um, and those sort of things. But that means effectively I can start somebody on day one and I don't have to dedicate another team member with them side by side for that full day, only about an hour, hour and a half. Hmm. So you're saying your, your orientation is, is kind of stored inside of there. Absolutely. Got it. Okay. So in terms of staff member buy-in, that's always a really interesting conversation to me. There's the compliance, i.e. you're going to do it because I tell you to. There's working with people that just kind of get in intuitively, and then there's something in the middle. How, sure. how have you managed buy-in? A couple of things. You know, we have a meeting every morning for 30 minutes with our entire staff where we talk about changes and advantages. 
um, many of those advantages they bring to the table. And then Joyn and I work on building those out. Um, so oftentimes, if it's their idea, we have their buy-in already because it was their idea. Uh, but we still do suffer from perfect example. We were making the switch from Process Street to Lead Simple, which in my mind both do very similar things, right? Uh, one of my team members, because of the excitement on some of the new things Lead Simple can do that Process Street can't, uh, somehow instantly got that in her mind. We were attempting to eliminate her position. Um, it's kind of a weird fear to grab out of nowhere, especially, but. I think that might have been maybe a, a default in our educating them that one, the products were very similar, one being much more efficient. Um, but really just scheduled a sit down one on one with that person and said, hey, here, here's the thing. We hired you for your mind, not to move paper around a desk very mm -hmm, quickly mm. Um, and brought them back to reality that that's what I need them for. The critical thinking processes, mm -hmm. not the, you know, scan this item and get it sent to property owner A is not as useful um, a, a task if you're going to depend on someone for their brain. And there really is an elevation of the human touch when you can do more of the banal with technology. You can actually put people in a more elevated position doing more noble, worthwhile work. And that requires explanation. But I think with explanation, it's actually a really exciting conversation. Agreed. Absolutely agree. So when you think about where you're trying to take the business, there's always this tension of wanting to have stability, which really requires stasis. Don't sure. change things. Keep it the same. And then there's ambition, which is to constantly break the business over and over and over again. How do you balance the tension between the desire for stability versus the ambition for more growth, more scale, et cetera? couple parts that that's that's been kind of interesting because honestly we took a little break with covid to see how things would shake out and change a little bit so we haven't been as focused on the ambition side really holding the business together in its whole uh, mostly because in a community of our size we've seen a lot of challenges with the you know restaurants going under a lot of businesses going out so for the last year we've been pretty mellow on it but we're really back to that uh, part of our process in handling that is something we call bulletproofing. So making sure that we have a backup system for every system in place. One of those being a second broker if something happened to Julian or I. Um, so that, that way the business wouldn't start to go backwards. Someone else could run it in the short term. And having all the people in place that can run the business to do that. Uh, that's 99% done. The plan is to have that all done by March 1st, which we're right there. Um, and then we'll move to the ambitious side. And I have a, a couple of key players in place to help me get some offices open in some other regions uh, for growth. This is interesting. This reminds me of Nassim Taleb's barbell strategy, which is to say you should focus on the duality of, on the one hand, don't die, downside protection, sure. don't lose money. And once that's covered, you should pursue as far in the other direction of the upside, the top line, et cetera. When you think about kind of balancing these two things, particularly on the risk management side. That's interesting. I don't hear people talking about bulletproofing in that way. What's the, how, how do you think about the value there? What are some other use cases of redundancies? So a couple of things. Let me share just briefly real quick why that's so important to me. I think Jolene and I feel a big sense of obligation to the team that helped us build the company. This particular company we started just six short years ago and uh, have built it up to have 10 team members plus ourselves and managed quite a bit of inventory in the city that we live in. And uh, so we feel an obligation to them. And we've seen in our career several companies who maybe the owner gets cancer or a, a debilitating disease. And unfortunately, a few weeks later, the accountant's just writing everybody checks saying, we don't manage your property anymore, mm -hmm. which seems rough to do to not only your team members you've hired, but secondly, all of the clients that are counting on you. So it's, it's part of why we're very passionate about bulletproofing and keeping that in mind is that obligation to our team who helped us get where we are mm -hmm. um, and our clients. So, so that's really important to us. 
Um, and then coming from the restaurant industry, you know, it's really apparent to us. If you can't get the client in the door, obviously nothing will happen after. You can't go any farther. And I think that's absolutely true to our business. I mean, one of the things we spend an incredibly large amount of time on in our company is valuing the tenants. We see, I mean, even yesterday at a conference that, uh, that we're attending this week, you know, we were listening to some folks kind of talking downward about all tenants, which I think is rough. Most it's not a good look. I don't think so. And in a business model, when you look at the folks who have all the money and everybody would like to get a slice of that, I think you should be most respectful to those folks. Now, granted, they don't always get what they want, of course, right? Sometimes you have to push back or tell them no or sure, collect the rent course, in course. our space. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, I don't think there's any reason to mistreat those folks. And that gets our, our team a lot of buy-in on what we do as far as purpose. So, Oh, acknowledging the humanity of the tenants. You feel mm -hmm. like, oh, interesting. Well, any examples that come to mind of how that plays out? Um, a couple of things. One, we actually have two receptionists up front in our lobby, even though that costs quite a bit of extra money to, to substantiate. Uh, but we have a lot of clients, especially elderly folks that want to come in and pay their rent. Oh, wow. I think they come in and pay their rent, but really their goal is to tell us about their latest fishing story. Um, and we're glad to do that. I'm glad to donate some of our, our profits backwards to our community to do this. Uh, but it really gives our team the buy-in that our clients are so important, not only the, the property owners, but the tenants as well. I mean, this is really interesting here. We're, we're at the intersection of uh, what is bottom line profitable versus what is the kind of business that you want to run. And it's your business, so you have permission to do that. Contextualize this for me. How many people in the city in which you manage? 100, about 110,000. All right. So it has more of a, of a, of a kind of a smaller intimate feel to it. 110,000. Interesting. Okay. So it, so do you feel like maybe the vibe here and the way you relate to it is a bit different than if you were managing the same number of units in downtown LA? I don't know that I would because I believe most businesses that are successful are built on relationships. And to be honest with you, you never know when a relationship will come back and produce results for you. I mean, I've had times where I've rented a small two-bedroom apartment to somebody and they were so thrilled with the service that they got that a year later, their uncle is bringing 12 units to my inventory because they won't stop talking about us. Mm -hmm. um, so we're spending a lot of time on that. Like, as I mentioned, you just really never know when something will come back to you tenfold mm -hmm. um, through that process. Um, you know, and I think that we would we'd want to keep that as important to us. Aaron, what is... One of the low points for you in the business in the six-year arc, what's been a really low point running Authority PM? Um, probably right after COVID opened, right after we got into play for COVID. You know, through our county, we had to do some things like closing our office, greeting our clients and customers at the door, not allowing them into the building. I mean, it just seemed like a really odd way to operate with our focus being on relationships and not not always profit. Um, so that was really tough and it was really tough on my team, um, to move away from that space because they're typically very interactive. A good example of that would be as we see often in, in conversations when we're talking with other property managers that they lean on technology so heavily. Um, and so if I hire someone from another outfit, you know, I come in and one of the first things that I realize is all they want to do is text every client. Like we're not going to ever talk to a client, uh, with these folks. They're just going to text every time about everything. And my team's trained exactly backwards because we believe that you can get about 90% of the stuff done in a conversation in about two minutes. But if you're texting back and forth with somebody, it sometimes it can get, oh, maybe hours, right? Uh, which means you're not being very efficient and you're shifting your focus backward and forward from one project to the next. Um, so I'd say that was probably one of really the toughest things is when we had to close our office and really lean on those technologies aside from the phone. 
uh, because it seemed so inefficient. And my team was constantly just changing directions from here to there. You know, you're working on Johnny's house through text and a text comes in from on, on Jim's house and now you're off working on his for 60 seconds. You still have to return back to what you were doing. It seemed like our efficiency rate went down pretty hard. I just didn't care for it. Hmm. Yeah. Obviously, that was a time of anxiety all around what's going to happen. I mean, sure. frankly, it felt apocalyptic Agreed. in the business. I'd say there was probably a three to six month window where everybody was holding their breath and wondering if this was going to be it and everything was going to get flushed. Gratefully, that didn't happen. And the impact ended up being, I'm not going to say a nothing burger for, for property uh, managers. Sure. It was devastating to a lot sure. of small businesses. But for most small businesses, it was a, it was a speed for most residential property managers. It was a very much a recoverable situation that they were able to push through. Now you mentioned being people first, the relational side of things. Let's counterbalance that talking about finance, talking about profit. Mm -hmm. What I find in my personal experience is that the stewardship to understand your numbers and understand the finance piece allows you to be generous. Sure. It allows you to take care of people as opposed to the raw, generous spirit that just ignores the finances. Screw it. I just want to help people. In my mind, that's actually a, a, a less generous spirit because you're not doing the stewardship work necessary to know much how you can help and still be strong as, a, as an organization. What are the numbers you pay attention to? What has been your journey as a small business owner in understanding the accounting and finance aspect of your business? Sure. So I'd say a couple of things. One is, you know, really paying attention to labor efficiency since we have so many in-house people is really important to us. Um, pay attention to that weekly. We pay all of our folks weekly for payroll. So it's easy to monitor in that aspect as far as money in, money out. You payroll pay payroll system. weekly. weekly. Mm -hmm. Why? That's interesting. It's novel. Oh, it's honestly just really easier for the team. So my accountant doesn't charge me any extra to handle it that way. And the team always has money coming in. It seems more comfortable for them. So interesting. Um, so we handle that that way. Um, so that being said, though, really paying attention to the labor efficiencies numbers are really important for us. But but something that I put before that, though, is I often see property management companies coming into the space and offering the lowest possible rates they can. Mm -hmm which then turns around and means they have the lowest labor or the highest labor efficiency because they don't have anyone to work. Um, and then they can't deliver on their promise. So I would share with you some of my numbers. I don't have to watch as, as much as maybe some folks do only because we built it right from the gate as far as what we needed to have for profit efficiency based on our rates. And if somebody comes in and they don't want to pay our rates, it's pretty unlikely that we'll do any sort of negotiation at that point because we can't deliver on our brand promise if we do. Um, you need the margin to deliver the quality of experience you're committed to. Absolutely. So that we can do, you know, a perfect example. You know, as I mentioned, we manage about 750 properties. I have a friend in our space back home that manages the same. You know, we have 12 people to do it. He has four. And I don't know that they use virtually any technology. If you pop on their website, it's literally one page. It's their logo and their vacancies. Um, and they're, they're not doing very well. Mm -hmm. And each time I talk to him or a member of his staff, they look or sound so incredibly stressed out. I'm sure they convey that to all their clients. Um, so I think that's a really, a really tough situation in that case. So mm. we try to avoid that by having the right pricing up front. Mm -hmm. uh, but definitely labor efficiency is one that we watch. Uh, income versus doors, you know, so we can track some of the ancillary services that we do. Let's talk about the pricing side of things. Sure. What is your pricing structure? Is it tiered? Is it flat fee? Is it a percentage? 
Uh, two parts to it. Flat fee um, as far as uh, base pricing for management monthly. Um, and then we have some tiers for power investors who pay a little bit more across their entire portfolio if they want investment advice as we hum along. Um, but then we also have some triggered things that come along throughout the management of a property like leasing renewals and such. Are you feeling any sensitivity in a flat fee paradigm with inflation being what it is at present? We haven't yet, but I think in my community, inflation rolls a little late only because I think it affects the bigger cities, which is where a lot of the money that we uh, have come into our county uh, comes from. So I think it's definitely on its way, but we haven't seen it yet. And is that something that has it given you any pause or reflection to potentially rethink? How did you get to flat fee in the first place? Percentage has been the kind of historic sure. baseline. Flat fee is, you know, I wouldn't say novel, but it's less common. And and forgive me, I might have actually stated that. I meant flat percentages. Got it. Okay. Yeah, not a not an absolute number. Correct. But we do have flat fees for leasing fees. Sure. Yeah. So uh, okay, got it. So you're you'll you'll ride with inflation as rents go up, et cetera. Absolutely. Got it. Okay. So what's getting you excited in the business right now? What's what's something that you're really kind of stoked about? Um, two things. One especially here in the state of California, California is making exuberantly complicated for anyone to manage rentals themselves. Mm. And although that's not great for us in complexity, that is fantastic for us. in the fact is, is that self-managed owners will probably move away from that shortly. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's kind of the dirty secret of the industry sure. as a free market guy, as a libertarian guy, it's kind of morally offensive, frankly, all of the regulation and the hassle and the overhead. From a raw business perspective, you can't deny that the complexity only makes the case for third-party property management. Sure. People have this awareness of like, I don't want to blow my foot off. I don't want to do something that's going to get me in legal hot water. Of course. Yeah. And and I think that's just great for us because that really helps us sell ourselves in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think it really adds value to, to what we do. I think in a lot of cases previously, you know, the legislative body wasn't really intent on making sure that there was a lot of media surrounding the complexity. And I think oftentimes maybe folks thought we had less of a job than we do. Um, you know, so each time we get to explain somebody rent control, you know, they're, oh my gosh, you, I, you, you really are worth your money, which, you know, means they'll hang around for a really long time, which is great for us. Yeah. Love it. What was the other thing that you mentioned is exciting you right now? Well, we had talked about earlier about software companies entering the space and being important for us to have new technology and things that are improving them better. Um, legislative's really super helpful thing. Um, one other thing that I think is really exciting is the amount of people that got into real estate that maybe would like to move into property management mm -hmm. seems to be a new thing, um, especially as our market and our area is starting to take a bit of a turnaround. I think it's neat that people want to cross over into that space because that'd be a huge pool of folks for us to hire from. So I'm super excited about that because when the market's trending up on the sales side, that's not a thing. Everybody probably wants to get out of property management and go you know, sell houses because in some cases, that's probably a little easier as it's very similar to what we do, right? You have to get a listing. Well, we have to sign up a home or, or a commercial building rep. You, know, you have to market advertise, same thing we do, market advertise, and then ultimately find a tenant, right? Um, or a purchaser. So I'm definitely excited to see people coming backwards um, instead of leaving our organizations for those of us that have staff in-house. I think that's a pretty fantastic trend. What are some things you've tried and failed at? Mm. Have you had any shiny objects of projects or programs or ideas you had at a conference that you tried to roll out and it just fell on its face? Not anything that as far as something maybe I picked up at a conference, but I would tell you, I've tried to copy some advertising ideas, you know, say for instance, billboards are really prominent for sales agents in our city. And I tried that to the tune of about 20 grand that, that produced next to, I don't know, any results. Really. Ouch. Ouch. 
um, I, I was just baffled that it produced no results, right? I mean, even if it was $1,000, I could at least track how bad it was. But we really couldn't track a single lead from them. Um, so that that was a flat nose moment that hurt. Did you <laughs> did you use a, uh, a custom phone number in the billboard? Uh, we did. And no calls? Nope. <laughs> no, no calls? No. None? None. Oh, no, no conversions is one thing, but no calls? No. Wow. No. Ouch. Yeah, that's why I said that was a real flat nose moment. And uh, it was actually, it was partly my own fault too. You know, sometimes when you see the shiny object and you go for it, right? I have another friend that that sells 100 houses a month in, in our community, does a lot of billboards. Um, but, you know, when you're selling 100 houses a month, right, you can buy billboards all day long, even if they don't produce results because you have a lot of extra cash laying around, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and to that tune, you probably have somebody managing your advertising budget for you at that point, mm -hmm. which believes in that. But when I went to talk with him about my failure, he was like, oh, I wish you'd see me sooner. Because mm. we only do those for name recognition, really no other reason. Oh, wow. And as a property manager managing 750 properties, you know, 20 grand in billboards is a lot of cash to devote to one advertising item to produce no results. So that was a flat noser. Yeah, mm. that, that one hurt. Yeah, that, that sounds that sounds painful. Aaron, you strike me as somebody that is happy in the business. You, I, I get a vibe of contentedness from you. How do you think about defining success and sure. giving yourself permission to feel successful as opposed to constantly being under the weight and the pressure of uh, an, an ambition that never really gives you permission to turn it off? I would share this. You know, I, I am a very happy person and I, I like to be comfortable where I am. Um, I chose the space, so I put myself here. And if I didn't like it, I'd probably go do something else. But one of the things I really enjoy about property management is what we really do matters. You know, when you're in the restaurant business, if somebody doesn't come in for dinner, right, it, their life's not changed, right? But when you've helped a family, when you've been in the business as long as I have, and you've seen them rent out of high school their first apartment, and then later they get married and they're renting their first small home, and then they're having a child and they need a bigger home, and mm. you've moved them three or four times, mm. Um, always helping them through their journey. And that's a pretty magical thing that mm. we really we really like being part of. And unfortunately, in our community, we've had a lot of Armageddon-type events. You know, the car fire was in my hometown, lost 1,100 homes. Um, we had Snowmageddon, which was the first time we had ever had about two and a half foot of snow in four hours. And it dropped, I, I think it was something like 35,000 trees in our community, blocking almost every street. Um, and we were one of the only property management companies to go to the office and start working and help people get into homes that were that because their home had been damaged. And that's pretty rewarding. And on a lot of jobs, as I mentioned, you know, like the restaurant business, if somebody doesn't come in for dinner, that probably is not going to change their life. But mm. when someone just lost their house and, you know, it's Sunday and you're helping them get into another house, that's, that's a pretty great thing. So I really enjoy that what we do matters. Yeah, the meaning that you assign to the work is really influential in the way that you relate to it. Um, one of the speakers that we heard made the comment that the way that you talk to people is a reflection of how you view them. Feels like a, a somewhat pedestrian sentiment, but it was a great reflection to me to audit my communications and the underlying relationships I have in some aspects of my communication that I feel like are, are suboptimal. The things that you're talking about making an impact on the community, is that something that, is that a something you intuit? Is that a feel or is that like a proactive, explicit conversation that you have with your staff? 
No, it's proactive all the time. You know, it's funny in the interview process, which I just interviewed another team member last week. And he said, do we ever have to weekend, ever have to work weekends? And I said, absolutely, if our community needs it. Mm. And he said, I don't understand. And so we talked about Snowmageddon, which is uh, an event that he lived through. And he said, oh, I get that. I said, so we had to come in and evaluate a lot of homes. We had homes that were crushed by trees. You know, we had to move people around. We had to do a lot of things. And uh, he was really surprised by that. So that actually starts in the interview process, typically, uh, when we start talking about how we can be there for our community. Mm, yeah, that totally makes sense to me. So going forward, in terms of where you're trying to take the business now, you mentioned that during COVID, you're focused on stability. As of now, what is the the vision for the next 12 to 24 months and where you're trying to take the business? Two things. From the very beginning, we designed it to be 100% repeatable. So all of our systems are uh, documented processed, so we can move them from one space to another. Um, so we're looking to probably open in another city. We're quite confident that we could open an office and be full blown in 30 days, ready to go. Um, so we're very excited about that. We have some, um, uh, cities that we're taking a look at right now in California that are close to Reading, uh, that we're going to probably take on in the next six months. Um, so that's one thing. <clears throat> and then Joy and I are also launching a coaching company for property managers that are in the space between 500 and 1500 units. Um, that aren't aren't the bigger property managers, right? Because we know that when we go to conferences and things, there's a lot of talk about technology. There's a lot of talk about uh, processes, but there's not a lot of talk about how running your business or how to involve yourself in the community or how to how to really make it happen on all of the smaller nuts and bolts. We have three coaching clients now that we that we handle, and uh, one of them's got close to 300 units, and we've been able to really turn his apartment complex that's closest to our office from just a standard apartment into a real community and dropped his vacancy rate by 12%. Mm. Um, and it's almost 90 units, so he's really happy with the results on that. Um, and then that's also allowed him to push up all of the rents in that space, um, increasing profit without you know creating extra turnover. So um, so that's our next goal. So. so when you talk about potentially expanding in other markets, will this be a back office model? How much will be done back at the mothership versus at, at the new office that you set up? Um, ideally, none of it. Uh, that way we can have it a one-off and then sell it if we choose to. None of it will be done at the at the back office or none of it will be at, done? At the home office, so say out of our Reading office, none, none of the tasks would be handled there. It would all be deployed at the new location. Oh, fully decentralized. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a little bit contrary to the the predominant thinking of like kind of centralized, have a hub sure. and spoke kind of model. What are you thinking there as far as the, the, the contrast? A couple of things. We wanted the ones that are away from our community to be repeatable and sellable, which, you know, if they're intertwined into your own organization, it's hard to do a break off very quickly. Mm -hmm. Someone can't purchase and come in and just take that over. It's tougher. Mm -hmm. um, so as an example, right? So we'd have a separate Affilio database separate from the one that we're operating out of so they wouldn't be intertwined. I actually learned this from another person that I do some coaching with who set his uh, entire organization up that way accidentally. Uh, but it works extraordinarily well from his perspective because some of his units are in different states. And so he never has a crossover for legalities between his staff because technically where you're sitting when you handle the work in some cases is where the state wants to obligate you to their laws. Um, so that's part of how we made that decision, uh, that we would keep them crisp clean uh, away from our office. So. So when you talked about having the systems and the process to be able to scale up a new office in 30 days, that's a pretty short timeline. What are some of the processes or the structures, the infrastructure that you're most proud of that you feel like enables that? Um, well, one is a, a – let me back up for just half a second. Twofold. One, um, we're going to have a, a checklist 
which is so in-depth uh, that's been built for opening of the new office that you could virtually place basically an Amazon order and lease the space and we'd be open once all those items arrived. Um, we have a local staffing company who's put together a module for other staffing companies so we could lean on another staffing company to handle the hiring under the same hiring processes that we do. And I think that's probably going to be one of the most powerful things because that'll be our biggest challenge, right? Leasing the space is a weekend event, right? Um, getting the Amazon order. I mean, if you're lucky, you know, Amazon Prime two days, if not three to five, right? To get all of your items in like desks, computers, all of the things that you need. Um, and it's interesting because the list joins created is actually built all the way down to the decorations an office would have. <laughs> so that way it'd be fully open in 30 days. Um, and she's a master at that. She did that with our last office and our move. I mean, we basically closed on Friday. We're back open on Monday and the, the new office was basically dialed in, um, giving us that ability. And then the checklist and processes is for hiring the new staffing company in that location, I think will be what really sets it uh, in motion to, to happen. Because as long as they can accomplish that in the 30 days, you'd be fully staffed and ready to go. What about day-to-day -day ops? Are there any aspects of your, pro your operational processes that you think are meaningfully different than how how other people or your competitors run their businesses? I would say absolutely. One is our staffing levels that we choose to have, I think, set us apart from our competitors. We talked about the competitor that I have that manages the same amount of properties that we do and has you know a quarter of the staff that we do. So I think that's one of them. And then I also have, be it that we're set up department, uh, departmental, I have a person in place for everything. So we have an application person who processes all of the applications for the company and move in and move out coordinators. Those positions are separated. So we really have people that are specific and their talents are specific to the position that they hold. And I think that really sets us apart. Uh, oftentimes when I'm dealing with competition or other competitors, I typically see that someone's been put into a place where they really shouldn't be. Now you're mentioning, I mean, you, you came back to this again, like the competitor that has a quarter of the staff members that would not, a lot of folks are hearing that and thinking, what's this guy doing? This is, this is, this is waste. Etc. And you mentioned you only have one person that's remote. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you defend this? I know some this is going to give some folks some indigestion, some heartburn hearing this. I'm going to go back to we really set our pricing right from the beginning, right? So, and we have to defend that when we're signing up clients. That's a pretty regular thing. They say it's pretty clear you're expensive. Why is that? We have to defend that by what we offer and how we're able to be nimble in their needs and handle them in an appropriate amount of time. In property management, forgive me, I'm sure I'm telling you some things you already know, but every time you delay a decision, either the situation changes or it costs more. Mm -hmm. You really can't table a decision very long, sometimes minutes, right? And uh, not having the staff to address those sort of things, I think, really creates a lot of the challenges. And when you build your pricing to match the staffing levels that you want to have so you can take care of your clients, I think that's a win-win. I see so many companies that are trying to build it backwards where they're trying to get the job done and then figure out how to pinch absolutely every penny they can out afterwards and mm. not reinvesting in the labor side of it. Mm -hmm. Probably coming from the restaurant business, I know that to be a little different, right? You have a certain amount of labor threshold you have to have to do certain things. Mm -hmm. And to that point, I think when you over leverage technology in some fashions, perfect example, I have a nice process built to follow up with somebody about getting them signed up for automatic deposit. And this might be a good tip for everybody that watch your systems because I had Lead Simple set up to follow up on that and, it, and I had it set up to send out an electronic document and I miss the fact that the uh, document provider has a three follow-up system. So in a very short amount of time, about 26 hours, they got four emails about signing up for direct deposit and they were none too happy at that point. Mm. 
as where if I had had a team member pick up the phone and make that two minute call, like, Hey, we're moving away from uh, cutting checks out of our office. It'll all be a bill pay system from the bank. We'd love to get you signed up for automated deposit. That might've been differently. Mm-hmm. So now when I get back, I have to have some sort of a follow-up with that client because we rubbed them the wrong way. And I like leveraging technology, but sometimes it doesn't always go the, you know, our way. So, so I, I, I love, I love labor efficiency, but I see some of it as a necessary evil, right? And sometimes you just have to spend the money to get the job done the way I want it done and in a relationship building fashion. All right. So what, what are these 10 roles? What are these 10 seeds? Uh, for, for the company? Mm-hmm. So we have two receptionists. We have a full-time person to handle applications. We have a full-time marketing coordinator. We have a full-time move-in coordinator, move-out coordinator. I have a full-time leasing coordinator. I have a full-time showing representative. And then Jillian and I are both there and a full-time office manager. And this is on 600 units? Uh, 750. 750. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And the one remote team member, what, what's their role? A marketing coordinator. He handles all of our social media. And did you feel, you know, remote has become such a thing it's 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 almost like we're we're past the site uh, the hype cycle on the remote side of things did you feel like and you only have one of those was the was there a hesitation there did you feel like a tension between hiring remote versus this idea of being in the community and for the community i i think the tension that i feel specifically for that is it's very difficult to include the remote team member in a lot of the things we do and sometimes that makes me feel a tad guilty right um, say we're going to go out on Friday night with the team and do axe throwing. Well, you know, he's not going to come up. That doesn't work. So, so I feel trepidation about that. That bothers me to have somebody on the team that I can't include hundred percent. So we do some other things to combat that, um, special for that individual, but that's bothersome to me to not include them fully in the team. Um, I would tell you as our first remote team member, he's been with us almost two years. So I was very nervous about entertaining that idea. There's a huge trust factor that you have to have. Um, we picked him up through a company that helps hire remote team members and we had a great experience. I've heard of other folks having experiences that didn't go so well, but you also have that with your in-house staff. So, um, I try to be pretty real on the fact is, is that just because that might be difficult there doesn't mean it wouldn't be difficult right in my lobby. Right. I mean, we still have to go through interviewing processes. You still have team members that come and go. Um, you know, you might interview somebody and find out that they're not the right person for the job during the interview. That Mm -hmm. can all happen with Mm -hmm. a remote team member. Uh, but I, I do enjoy some of the advantages that I believe one is since they're outside of the office, they're sort of drama free. So if we're having some sort of an event in our office, it doesn't affect their workload, um, which I kind of enjoy because in property management, and we've, we've seen this for 18 years, but you know, there's always the, you get off the phone with the tough situation and that team members wandering around telling everybody else about their tough situation Mm -hmm. and labor efficiency is just (laughs) sliding down quickly. Um, uh, but I think remote team members, I think they're a great asset to our industry. I really do. Um, and I wouldn't be afraid to hire more. So, Yeah, it's definitely been a game changer across the industry as a whole. It's something that we've embraced. And I, I take joy in being able to work with talented people across the world where there's a great exchange of me feeling like I'm really able to pay a great wage. Sure. And they feel like that. And, and it's but it still is incredibly efficient for me. So it feels like a win-win from that perspective. That's definitely been a huge win and significant takeaway for me. When I think about what you've articulated thus far and the lifestyle that you're able to have running this business, one of the things that I wonder about is workload. How many hours do you think you and your wife are working per week in the business? I think effectively we're probably pushing about 40 or so each. 40 or so each. Okay. Yeah. And and stress levels, What's what's the vibe? What's it feel like for you right now? 
I think honestly, after being in it for 18 years, there's there's so much less stress for her and I, right? Because we've seen mostly everything you can see nearest we can tell. Now I'm sure I'm going to get a call as soon as I leave this this uh, spot that something crazy is happening, and, we're, and I won't be something I've seen. But but for the most part, you know, after we've been in the space so long, we're crystal clear on the fact is that almost always we can find some kind of solution, and we don't have to own the problem. And we really recognize that if there wasn't problems, there wouldn't be property management. Right. I mean, if the tenants were amazing all the time and could repair everything, the owner wouldn't hire us. So in a way, the more problems, you know, for some people that creates more stress. For us, it just really solidifies more of what we do and our value. Um, so I don't get a lot of a lot of stress for that. Really, when I stress is when Joanne and I get pulled out of our roles. Say a team member's out for a few weeks with COVID or something, and we have to step out of our role and we don't have that quite covered. Uh, because then we know that our, our business isn't quite bulletproof. If we have to keep jumping into it, that causes us some stress because we feel like we're missing the target goal for this year. What's one piece of advice that you wish you had heard early on in your career? I would say don't lose sight. If you're a property manager and you're building the company, don't lose sight of your personal health. I think in the beginning, Jelena and I were working so hard to get it launched and off the ground. I mean, 80-hour work weeks, you know, not hitting the gym anymore, not doing the things that we should be doing, eating terribly because you're picking up food that's close to your office instead of bringing lunches or things. I think that probably would have been it is, is you really have to manage it in such a way that you go and you do the hard work, but you still have to step back and enjoy your life so you don't lose your mind. Because that's, you know, we, we hit the grind pretty hard when we launched it as a... When we talked about it, you know, we started six years ago, but we started with zero doors. I mean, mm -hmm. rented an office and launched it with mm -hmm. zero doors mm -hmm. um, and to get to this point. But in the beginning, I mean, just 80-hour work weeks, which I th I think if I could go back, I don't know that that was the most efficient way to do that. A mm -hmm. lot of maybe working harder, not smarter. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a certain there is a certain aesthetic to some people feel like if you work hard, you'll get there. And that's not always true. I mean, there's some projects at our business that I've worked really hard on, like the billboards, you know, getting all that done, picking the perfect ads. And I got nowhere at all. And, you know, the hard work, I could have doubled the hard work. I think, unfortunately, the results would have been the same. Mm. So I'd say really just really just don't lose sight of the rest of your life if you're launching a company or building it and make sure you create some space in between the two. I think it's just hugely important. Mm. And I think it'll give you clarity when you step away. Some of our best ideas are not when we're at the office when we're having lunch or it's Saturday and we're having a conversation. So, um, you know, maybe also best to, to take some time away when you're doing your planning sessions and not try to handle them during your work day or, you know, uh, me working with my spots is kind of different because we just walk across the office. Hey, come here. I got to talk to you about this idea. Right. Mm -hmm. um, taking some of that outside the office. So it's a little separate too, I think would have been really good for us. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. You know, my reflection is that there's a combination of morning enjoy to find out about the disconnection between effort and outcomes. The morning is, man, like that was the crutch I was leaning on is I was willing to work 80 hours a week. Sure. And I was hoping that would be enough to get me what I wanted. The joy is, wow, what if I could have amazing results and it was not connected to my effort? And this becomes very obvious at scale when you see people running things at a hundred times the size of what you're doing, no one's under the illusion that person is working a hundred times harder, Sure, but it can be a, a safety blanket working hard, jumping in, just feeling like if I grip, it's like this low level kind of control mm -hmm. that feels good in the moment, but it's not, it's not sustainable in the end. True.
What's one cause that you believe in and is important to you? I think two things I'm very passionate about rotary. I spend a lot of time with my rotary club every week. Um, so I'm really passionate about that. We do some really great things like helping to cure polio. I think we're at 96% across the world right now. Um, so I'm very passionate about that opportunity. I don't know. <clears throat> any, I don't know anything about rotary, to be honest. I've heard Would you of like it. to come <laughs> if I'm in the area. Yes. I'm just sign, just sign yeah. me up. What's, what's the 30 second spiel on, on rotary? Uh, Rotary is a really a self-service club that's uh, all over the entire planet. I mean, just our community alone has six different clubs that meet. You know, in a uh, hundred thousand person city. Yeah, one of the clubs has 150 members. Our club's pushing, I think, about 95. There's two or three smaller clubs somewhere in the 40, 50 range. Wow! Uh, but it's absolutely huge. You might have seen the <clears throat> the Rotary wheel at different times. You know, if you're at a park with the kids and, uh, you know, you see the big mechanical rotary brass wheel, that means that the the folks at Rotary either donated a hefty amount of labor to build that park or a lot of money to usually one or the other. I think in our community, I think it's 12 different parks that we've helped uh, put up or place, uh, which is super neat. So I'm really passionate about that. It's a pretty, pretty fantastic organization. And they do a lot of things on the national level, as I mentioned, curing polio. Um, as a matter of fact, I have two friends that, uh, just spent some time in South Africa. They had some vacations away from work and spent their entire vacation down there doing inoculations for polio, uh, which is pretty powerful. Um, is there a stated agenda? Like what, 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 what organizes and binds the rotary members together? Uh, two things. One, I think passion for friendship and changing the world is, is, you know, probably the biggest thing. Uh, but they have so many things they're involved in. The way Rotary is really built is some of the funds that you donate and uh, are part of your membership go to the national level, some of the international level. A lot of them are actually invested and repurposed back to the club, the individual club, and the members get to choose how that money's spent in their community. So um, it, it's right now we probably have three different projects at our Rotary Club going on right now. So it's pretty powerful. And is there a code? Is there like a stated agenda for the organization helping humanity? What what specific? Uh, service above self. Service above self. It's a, so it's a pretty broad mandate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, service above self. Great. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for the 30-second spiel, and thanks for, thanks for coming on, brother. I've, I've enjoyed hearing you reflect on the sustainable lifestyle that you seem to be really enjoying. The dichotomy that I experience with the flavor of entrepreneurship that I've embraced is that my ambition drives me and it creates opportunity. It creates uh, prestige, some status, and it also creates a low level anxiety and compulsiveness that has to be managed. Sure, It's like the things that make you great are also um, heavy to bear at times. So talking to someone that feels the comfort to embrace their lifestyle and to not have some guilt trip that you don't manage 6,000 units and to enjoy the pace at which you work and to give yourself permission to view what you're doing as successful is, is refreshing. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you coming on brother until next time. All right. Boom. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. 
I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.